Hello, my name is Hank Belfield, and I'm the pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church in Chilhowee, Virginia. And I'm Jay Bennett, pastor at Neon Reform Presbyterian Church in Neon, Kentucky. And I'm Corey Page, a student of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And together, we're the Geneva Mountain Boys. We want to welcome you to this next episode of our podcast. We are completing our study today of the Apostles' Creed. It's been a long journey, but we trust that you, who have been with us from the beginning, have been edified by the things that we've discussed. Sometimes we've waded into deep waters, and sometimes we've talked about the highlights and the superficial aspects of these things, but it's vitally important for us to see that the creed is a whole, and as we come to this conclusion today, it's really the capstone of everything that has been going on up to this point, the culmination of these wonderful doctrines of grace in which the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is redeeming a people for himself and bringing glory to his name as they gather around him. So as we finish this last segment of the Apostles' Creed, we are told that we believe in the life everlasting, and the entire creed ends with the Amen. This is a reminder that the scriptures teach us that there is something beyond this present world. And I want to begin by quoting from our Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Gospel of John chapter 6, where he ties the idea of resurrection of the body with the life everlasting. In verse 38 and following, we read, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And so in like manner, the Apostles' Creed, after affirming the resurrection of the body, speaks about the life everlasting. We are raised body and soul for an existence that goes on forever and evermore. But as with these uh, many statements that are very succinct in their affirmation, we can unpack it and see that there's more than meets the eye. So let's talk a little bit about this whole idea of the life everlasting, brothers. You'll notice here it speaks about life on the one hand and how long that life endures. It endures everlastingly. We've already talked about the resurrection of the body, so we've touched on some of these aspects already, but nevertheless, we can go into deeper territory now. So what kind of life are we talking about that endures everlastingly? Well, certainly uh, immortality uh, is in view, no longer being able to die. And as we think about the promise of everlasting life, the promise of life in the world to come, it is more than just a matter of quantity. It's also a matter of quality. It is the consummated, glorified life that was originally promised to Adam in the garden upon condition of his perfect and personal obedience, which we would call, of course, the covenant of works. When God threatened death to Adam on condition of his disobedience, his eating from the forbidden tree, the opposite of that is implied, which is life on condition of obedience. And you see that quite clearly in Genesis chapter 3, 
when God expels both Adam and Eve from the garden in order to keep them from eating from the other tree in the garden, which was the tree of life, so that, the text says, they will not live forever. So what Adam lost when he ate from the forbidden tree was the right to eat from the tree of life and thereby live forever. Now, we don't believe these trees were magical. They're sacramental in nature. In other words, they function as signs and seals of the covenant, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil signifying and sealing the curse of the covenant, and this tree of life signifying and sealing the blessing of the covenant. So Adam would have been blessed with eternal life, with everlasting life, with glorified life in communion with God, with a heavenly existence had he obeyed God, had he fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works. So then we can talk about life not merely from the standpoint of existence, uh, ongoing existence, but, but we can talk about life in that sort of um, qualitative sense. Mm-hmm. that it's it's the abundant life. And, and Adam had that in the garden, right. didn't he? It's life of fellowship with God. Right. Uh, Adam had fellowship with God in the garden, but it was an intermittent fellowship. It was a fellowship mm-hmm. that came and went, right? So God comes into the garden and he's there. His special presence is with Adam, but then he's gone. And then he comes again. The kind of communion that God held out to Adam in the covenant was a communion beyond that sort of communion in innocence it was a glorified communion right yeah i the question that i threw out there is because i I was thinking about jesus's statement where he says um, that he came to give his people life Mm -hmm. and that more abundantly right and of course there's different understandings of that but i think one of the things that we could infer from that is that he he came to not merely affirm or or confirm rather for us who trust in him by God's grace, an everlasting existence, but that there would be that sweet communion, which Adam had a taste of, but was by his expulsion from the the garden of paradise, no longer able to enjoy. And, And Christ, the second and last Adam, has that intimate fellowship with the Father from all eternity. And he comes to bring it as the new covenant head to those who are in him, when we speak about everlasting life, I think it's important that we're not just affirming that we go on, though certainly we are affirming that, mm-hmm. but that we go on in true life, life to its fullest. Right. Um, life in sweet communion and union with God. Not union in the sense that we lose our individuality, of course, but that sense that we are with Him. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are given the right to eat from the tree of life, right? And Yeah. And the tree of life for us has become Christ himself. It's interesting, you see that tree of life imagery not only in Genesis 1 through 3, but you also see it in Revelation 21 and 22. At the very end, when the new creation is consummated, the tree of life is mentioned as being for the healing of the nations. Mm. Um, I want to tease this out a little bit more. We were talking in the last um, episode of our podcast about the resurrection of the body and we we noted that there's a distinction to be made between how believers are raised and how unbelievers are raised mm-hmm. and so I, let's talk a little bit now about this life everlasting it, does this apply to both believers and unbelievers or is this only restricted to believers and and if it applies to both 
is there any qualitative difference between the two? So first, does it does it apply to both, or is this only talking about Christians? So we know that on the last day when Christ returns, and uh, both those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ will arise, and that it will be an eternal existence for both the believer and the non-believer. But as you've already alluded to, there will be a qualitative difference, for that the one who is not in Christ will be in an eternal state of death, where they will experience the torment of God forever and ever in a place called hell, both body and soul, at the last day. And for those who are in Christ, they will be resurrected unto an eternal state of, of bliss and blessedness, of being God's special presence, uh, communing with his people and communing with him. Yeah, I think these last two articles are uh, affirming the resurrection of the body unto glory and the life everlasting, which is glorified life. So they're, they're specifically about the experience of the Christian on the last day and not the experience of the non-Christian. So the life everlasting doesn't have in view the eternal existence of the condemned. Right. Uh, in fact, I, I think if we were going to think about it that way, we would probably want to say the death everlasting, right? So, so the way the Bible speaks of hell is eternal death, eternal destruction, um, being cast away from the Lord, who is the fountain and the giver of life. So I, I would say, I think it's pretty clear here that both of these statements, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, is, is a reference to what will happen for Christians on the last day. Right, so it's focusing more on the, on the positive side of the equation right. without, without denying the Bible's teaching on the negative side of the equation. It's just that that's not in view here. What's in right. view here yeah. is, the, is the Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but just sort of talking about this more broadly, because I think you're right, Jay, mm -hmm. but talking about it in, as a more broad topic, what would we say to those who would argue that for the unbeliever, there is a, a cessation of existence that yes they're raised and yes they stand before the tribunal of god on the judgment but at the judgment while the righteous go into everlasting life the wicked or the unbeliever just simply ceases to be and that this is some sort of evidence of god's magnanimity even in that because he's not going to torture these poor souls for eternity. Um, is that a biblical idea? Or? Yeah, I think we would point to Jesus' teaching on the final judgment that, you know, he will be the judge at the final judgment, and he will separate the sheep from the goats, and he will send the goats. He will send those who remained in unbelief, the wicked, the unrighteous, he will send them into eternal torment. So that is a conscious torment that he's referring to there. I think you also see it in his teaching with regard to the rich man and Lazarus. There you see that the rich man is suffering consciously. I think you have that. You also see it in um, Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is a vision of the final judgment as I read it. It's a vision of the final judgment, and uh, it begins with the redeemed saints in heaven rejoicing over the condemnation of the wicked who are personified as the whore of Babylon. 
and they say together as they sing to God and, and glorify God for his justice, they say the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Mm-hmm. So if we believe in annihilationism, that image doesn't seem to make much sense. Why, why would they say the smoke goes up forever and ever? I think the reason is because she is burning forever and ever. This is a conscious torment that happens forever and ever. Yeah, Corey, any thoughts there? Second Thessalonians 8 and 9 say this, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Not just a one-time event of being annihilated. Eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Yeah, and I, I could hear some people latching on to the word destruction, which suggests the idea of a, a ceasing to exist, but you're, but you're it's emphasizing it's, it's eternal. eternal. Uh, so it, it's a, a, an imagery of being constantly under that destructive power. Yeah. I thought about several verses. Um, we talked about last time, because th- these things are closely associated, the resurrection and, and life eternal. The quote from John chapter 5, where Jesus says that he, some will be raised to everlasting life and some will be raised to condemnation. Um, that echoes the sentiments of, of Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then, of course, Jesus is pretty explicit about it. In Matthew chapter 25, which is what Jay was alluding to just a a moment ago, when he separates the two groups, the believers and the unbelievers, the sheep and the goats, he says to those who are his sheep that they would enter into eternal rest, but to those who are the goats that they will be punished for eternity. He even says at the very end of that passage, and these will go away to everlasting punishment but the righteous to eternal life. So there's clearly an ongoing existence of both groups. The difference is one has life in the truest sense, not just existence, but abundant blessing and rest and peace and triumph. Mm -hmm. And the other uh, continues on, but in in a state of of eternal punishment. So I I think it's very important for our listeners to, to understand that the doctrine of annihilationism while it may afford on the surface of things some sense of consolation that those who've died outside of Christ don't experience any kind of negative existence now, that's not the biblical teaching. In fact, it's in light of eternal punishment that we are told to flee the wrath to come. It's one of the things that in this present world, God through his word and by the preaching of that word wishes to compel us to turn away from the path of of wickedness and sin. Certainly, having no existence isn't as wondrous as, and, and a blessing as having eternal life. But you, you can see where someone might try to comfort themselves and say, well, I'll just cease to exist, and therefore I won't know any different because I won't be around. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Both go on, one in bliss and the other in punishment. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts ab- ab- about this final statement and the life everlasting? Again, thinking about the connection with the doctrine of hell, I know that that's not what this particular article is about, but it is connected. I think there's a connection to the love of God here as well, because 
you know, we, you, you and I, you know, we, we've heard people say before, I don't believe a God who would condemn sinners could be loving, right? Part of our answer to that is, unless God condemns sinners, he cannot be loving. And our, our rationale for that is that ultimately God's justice that he expresses against sin in condemnation is intimately connected with his love. He is his love. He is his justice. So you, you can't have one without the other. These things go together. So for God to cease to be just would be to cease to be God, which would be to cease to be love. And this is why the Apostle Paul is at pains, I think, to explain in Romans 3 that it was necessary for Christ to come and to die as the propitiation for our sins that God might be just and the justifier, so that God might justify us, might show us mercy and kindness and grace without offending his holy justice. Now, we can take that kind of idea and then apply it to the life everlasting and it's, you know, the other side of the coin, which is everlasting destruction. Uh, not in a yin and yang kind of way, but we can say rightly that if hell is not eternal torment, then heaven cannot be eternal bliss. And, and, and the rationale would be if God annihilated the sinner, the only way he could do that would be to offend his justice. And the moment he offended his justice, he ceases to be God. So he's no longer a God of love. And then that robs heaven of its central component, which heaven is a world of love. I mean, it is a world in which the love of God is unmitigated toward us and from us to him and to one another. So if we're going to take away the severity of hell, we have to also take away the glory of heaven. And I don't think we want to make that kind of trade. Yeah, I, I maybe another way of looking, getting at what you were alluding to there is that you can't fully appreciate the bliss of heaven unless it can be understood as a contrast, as the antithesis. Yeah, yeah that, that's one way to think about it. You're, that, that's really thinking about it more in terms of how we know and experience heaven. Mm -hmm. I was wanting to make the, I think, the even more foundational point that it gets down to the very being of God. Mm -hmm. And if we fiddle with the being of God, then heaven can't be. Mm -hmm. it, you know, so uh, the, the heavenliness of heaven is dependent upon the godness of God. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I don't want to go too far with that. No, that's, that's good. Uh, well, let's... That's a good point, though, Hank. I do think you're right. I, I agree with that, that our experience of heaven will be all the greater because of our awareness of the execution of God's justice against the wicked in hell. I think that's what Paul's doing in Romans 9, 22 and 23. I think it's what Revelation 19 has in mind when it says the smoke from her goes up for, forever and ever. Yeah. Rejoicing in the execution of God's justice uh, against the wicked. And that's part of their bliss to see that. Glory. Yeah. Along those lines, you know, let's, let's come back to the positive side of the equation, because as we said a little bit ago, this really is on the positive side of the equation, that the eternal life that the believer experiences and um, theologians talk about the beatific vision. Would one of you men share with our listeners? What, what, what's that about? What's the beatific vision? And how does that tie into this idea of everlasting life in the qualitative sense? Uh, this gets back to the way the Bible describes the blessing. So to say beatific, we're talking about blessedness. What is blessedness? Um, what is it to receive the blessing of God? And when you look at 
for instance, uh, the Aaronic benediction. What's in view there exactly? Um, well, the image that's painted is God lifting his face and his countenance up to us that we might see him. Now think about that benediction in light of what Moses asks God on the mountain. Uh, along the way, he asked to see God's glory, right? I want to see you, God. That's, that's, his, that's his earnest desire. And of course, God says, you can't see me and live. And so he places him in the cleft of the rock and he shields him. And he passes by and lets him see what the text calls his backside glory, which is to say, I think, the after effects of his glory. But that earnest desire to see the glory of God is a holy desire. Uh, you see it, for instance, moving forward into the life of Christ, the life and ministry of Christ. You see it when, uh, is it uh, Philip asks in John 14 in the upper room, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't understand if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And of course, this is part of John's whole program in his gospel. He says in John chapter 1 and verse 18, at the very end of his prologue, as he opens up his gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is at his side has made him known. Right. So who is that only begotten God? Well, that's the Son. Uh, he has made the Father known. Theologians in the history of the church have looked at these ideas, and we could go beyond these things. I mean, think about 2 Corinthians, uh, where Paul says, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, this is what God has prepared for us, right? So uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. The implication is one day we will see. So uh, the idea of beholding the glory of God, uh, this is the great goal of humanity. It's a way of thinking about that communion that we will have with God. If you have communion with someone, you, you see them as they are. You understand them. You know them. And the better you know them, the, the, the sweeter the communion should be. Mm. So all of this is involved in this idea of the beatific vision. The saints in heaven perceive the glory of God with their glorified eyes. They can see the glory of God. How? How do they see the glory of God? I think we're best to understand that it's through the mediation of the glorified Messiah of, of Christ. And this is again, John five, where pardon, not John five, second Corinthians five, where the apostle Paul talks about beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The, the God who said, let light shine out, out of darkness uh, has shown his glory uh, in the face of his son, that kind of idea. So the life everlasting really could be summarized as the beatific vision. It's when, when we move from the world of faith to the world of sight and we see Christ and we know him as he is because we will be like him, glorified with him. That's a, a reminder of just how abundant this everlasting life truly is, to have the veil removed and to behold yeah. him face to face. Right. Yeah. Though you do not now see him, you know, for first Peter, right? Though you do not now see him, you rejoice in him with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. But the, the implication is you will see him mm -hmm. on the last day, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And that, that's the glory of heaven is to see Christ. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. Well, one other thing that is noted here and as we come to the end of this creed is the word amen. And um, it may seem like an insignificant little thing. But uh, I think it would be fitting for us to just have a, a brief comment or two about the significance of the fact that the creed typically ends with amen. Mm -hmm. uh, we use that word a lot in Christian circles. 
you can be in church and people will sing amen at the end of a hymn or a psalm. Sometimes when someone wants to affirm a particular point that's being made from the pulpit, they, they might say amen. Uh, we use liturgical amens at times in, in worship. What is amen? What, what does that mean? We, we, we sometimes don't ever stop to think about its significance and, and its meaning. As you already said, it's a, a term used for affirmation or affirming something. So mm -hmm. the, the word itself can be said truly or verily. So when Jesus, when he's uh, give, delivering his Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, truly, truly, I say to you. Or in other words, amen, amen. In a similar way, the creed is closing out saying amen because we're saying that we affirm everything in this creed and we believe it, we trust in it, and we look forward to the hope that's in it. Just, just as those uh, at the end of Revelation 22 uh, when it says in verses 20 through 21, it says, He who testifies, being Christ, to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. And then it goes back to the human author being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Yeah, it's like, it's like a cheer of yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like a song. Yeah, literally, uh, let it be so. Let it yeah, be let so. it be so. Yeah. Think of the Beatles song, Let It Be. No, don't do that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, are there the fact that there's an amen here, coupled with the fact that there's this systematic laying out? Because the amen applies not just to this last statement that we're considering in this episode, but it, it applies to the entire creed. Right. And credo from from the Latin means I believe, right? Uh, and that's what we're affirming here. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. I, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and it ends with amen. So if amen means affirmation or let it be so, what does that tell us about how this creed is utilized in the life of the church? Yeah, it was a part of the church's liturgy. You know, originally the, the creed is part of the baptism uh, of uh, Christians. Uh, this is what they had to affirm, at least uh, prior to being baptized, at least those that were coming from the outside. So it was used liturgically in that way. And then also it be began to be used liturgically uh, also as just a common confession of faith, as the church would stand to confess the living faith that had been handed down to it from the apostles it would confess the creeds, and this is one of those. Well, dear listener, I hope that you have been edified as you have uh, made your journey with us through this creed of the church, and I hope that the things that we have learned and discussed will help you have a greater appreciation for what it is that you affirm when you cite the words of this creed, hopefully in the context of corporate worship, as well as in your own private life. And so as we conclude this particular series uh, with the mindset that um, the life everlasting touches on the beatific vision of God's face shining upon us in approval, uh, I just want to say farewell with the words of the uh, priestly benediction. May the Lord bless and keep you May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.